Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast series featuring expert insight on contemporary religious and political issues. In this episode, Yale alum Emily Judd interviews Yale professor Mary Evelyn Tucker. Professor Tucker, along with her husband John Grimm, founded the Forum on Religion and Ecology at Yale, which promotes the engagement of world religions in confronting environmental crises. Professor Tucker argues that the fields of science and religion must come together to save the planet. The spiritual revolution and the ecological revolution are one. More and more scientists are saying we need the voices of religions, the moral, ethical, transformative voices. Professor Tucker responds to critics who question the urgency of climate change. Our Department of Defense has issued several reports, 2014, 2018, to say climate change is a national security issue. And Professor Tucker talks about the importance of the International Paris Agreement. The future of the planet depends on many, many things, including the Paris Agreement. Welcome, Mary Evelyn, to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Emily, for having me. It's a real pleasure. So what is your evaluation of the current state of human-Earth relations in 2019? Are you optimistic, pessimistic? That's a very good question, a good opening one. And I think it's something many of us are thinking about uh, because the reports, both from the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change and the reports on extinction and uh, various aspects of the environment are troubling, to put it mildly. And then we see the effects of drought and floods and hurricanes and uh, peoples in coastal waters all over the world and very poor people are vulnerable to this climate change escalation. So um, I don't actually know if I'm optimistic or pessimistic, um, but I think with realism and certainly with a deep sense of, of faith and possibility, and this is why the religious communities are important, I think we can do something about that together with scientists and policy people and economists and so on. So that's why I'm excited to be here with you. And what gives, does anything in particular give you hope for that, uh, you know, human-earth relations going forward? Yeah, I think really um, our students, John Grimm, my husband, and I have been teaching here 13, 14 years, and our students at the forestry school and at the divinity school and students from the uh, Sacred Music Institute, all of these are very bright caring, concerned students. And I think whether they're going to go into ministry or teaching or NGOs, they're going to make a difference. And we're seeing that, aren't we, with young people now all over the world, Greta Thornburg and the protests and the influence that has had. And so I'm guessing it's not too late for humanity to address climate change and species extinction. You don't think that we've missed our chance, do you? I don't. I don't. Um, there's some people who do. Um, and we've been thinking about this for over 40 years because of our teacher, Thomas Berry, who was very insightful, prescient, understanding what we are facing. So over these various decades, people have been saying, well, we only have a certain amount of time and so on. And one of the recent reports said 12 years. Um, but I think we are going to, to go through tremendous suffering. We already are. But uh, I think we can't give up hope, possibility, change, transformation, and action. Now, your initiative, the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology, promotes the engagement of world religions in confronting environmental crises. 
What do you say to critics who say that religion and ecology, they don't have anything in common. They should be separate fields. Well, you know, Emily, again, it's a good question. And 20 years ago, when we started this work at Harvard at the Center for the Study of World Religions, we did a series of 10 conferences, beginning with the Asian traditions and then all the Abrahamic traditions and indigenous traditions. And it was over three years. And literally a thousand people participated in these. We had conferences in New York. Bill Moyers interviewed the religious leaders. We announced the forum uh, on religion and ecology at the UN. That was 1998, October. There were a thousand people at the Natural History Museum. The museum uh, said you can have the IMAX theater rent free because this is so important. So backing up, yes, this has been a long journey because sometimes religious people didn't get it and sometimes scientists didn't get it. But more and more scientists are saying we need the voices of religions, the moral, ethical, transformative voices. Um, so the synergy is definitely having traction. It's a field now in academia. YDS has a master's in religion and ecology. We have a joint program with the Divinity School. And these are terrific students. That wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. It seems like there is a lot in Christianity that is actually working against caring for the environment. Do you feel that way? And how can we reinterpret something? I'm, I'm just, what comes to mind is the apocalyptic vision of, okay, well, in the end, this earth is going to all go away anyway, so we can treat it whatever, however we want to treat it. Right. So the book of Revelations, you know, has certainly that sensibility. And James Watt, who was an EPA, Environmental Protection Agency director many years ago, had that view. Some uh, Christian groups do, evangelicals and, and others. Um, so I think what we're uh, talking about here is this is a tradition that's 2,000 years old. It's clearly changed over time. So with each of these traditions, what the suggestion is, and this is why we need academia as well as engaged projects. So we're talking about retrieval of texts and traditions, ideas and practices, but reevaluation of those for present circumstances and then reconstruction. And that's why something like Christian ecofeminism, process thought, uh, new green biblical thought and so on, all of it's part of this transformation that's been happening now for a couple decades actually, but we have even further to go. Now, philosopher Eckhart Tolle gives the following warning about humankind abusing the earth and its resources. He said, quote, we will not destroy the planet. We will destroy ourselves. When the planet feels threatened by humans, it will eliminate humans. How are ecological crises sabotaging our own existence and survival as humans? Yes, well, he said that, but many scientists have been saying that for a long time. And if one heard the talks that we hear weekly at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies on water issues, on climate change, on pollution, on extinction of species. Um, it's absolutely overwhelming. So almost every talk we give, people ask this question, will humans survive? And so that's why this becomes even more so a religious question, because it, it asks us, what is our identity? Are we going to allow more and more species to go extinct? Isn't this part of creation? Isn't this part of what we value, we love? This is God's creation and so on. So I think it's an extremely important question. Um, Ed Wilson, a great 
scientists, biologists from Harvard is saying we're going through an hourglass of extinction. Many scientists are saying we're going through extinction. It's not deniable anymore. And even on the Hall of Biodiversity in New York at the Natural History Museum, there's a plaque that's been there for 20 years that says we are in the midst of a sixth extinction. We have the possibility of stemming the tide of destruction. Now, that's something I think YDS might want to think about and think about how their courses may change. Now, an interesting example here is Institute for Sacred Music is doing a workshop and a longer range project on uh, religion, ecology, music, and the arts. And this is one example of what we can do at a place like Yale Divinity School, Institute of Sacred Music, or the Forestry School. Um, now, you've mentioned some academic and educational initiatives. I'm wondering what's your opinion on the American government arguing to pull out of the Paris Agreement? Very good question. So the Paris Agreement was one of the most important of all of the Conference of the Parties, COP, agreements on climate change, which has been going on for a long, long time. Our students at the Forestry School participate. Um, Christiana Figueres, whose daughter is here at Yale, she was leading this um, and believing strongly in the role of religions uh, in this uh, effort. So our government has... Um, insisted that we should withdraw because it's not good for the economy, which is absolutely false. Uh, we are in a stage where we're moving from a fossil fuel and dirty economy with immense subsidies for that economy. I actually read very recently that the subsidies for oil and gas in this country equal the military budget, which is in the trillions of dollars. If we had put a sliver of that into research and development, we would have the solar, wind, hydropower, and so on. So first of all, we're not out of the Paris Accord until 2020, which is actually good news. But here's the challenge. Our Department of Defense has issued several reports, 2014, 2018, to say climate change is a national security issue. All of our bases that are coastal bases, including Norfolk, San Diego, are at risk for climate change flooding. Norfolk, there's, a, I don't know how many days it is a year, but maybe 50 to 60 days a year that to get on and off the base is a big this issue. This is in Virginia? Yes, Norfolk, Virginia, our largest base anywhere. So every single base is dealing with climate change and the rising seas. The Navy understands this. And these papers say this is a national security issue. And just to go back to the Paris Agreement, I'm just wondering, what would you say to the American who doesn't understand why the Paris Agreement is the the answer, something that's not, that's uh, transnational, I guess? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I would unfortunately say that the U.S. is out of sync with the rest of the world because we are the only country that is still denying the science of climate change. And this has scientists deeply disturbed, deeply upset. So we're living in a bubble. And we, in fact, on these international conferences are considered outlaws. In Bali, in the COP conference, our representative was shouted down after a huge hurricane in the Philippines that was devastating to people, again, poor people, vulnerable people, they were shouted down and said, unless you join the rest of the world, <laughs> You're an outlier. P Americans don't understand this because we have had think tanks, Koch brothers, 
uh, ensuring that denial would be on the front lines. So what do I say? The future of the planet depends on many, many things, including the Paris Agreement, because these are voluntary uh, numbers of what each country is pledging to reduce their carbon emissions. And the big step forward there was the U.S. under Obama was able to get China and India on board, you see, in a way that this was collaborative and cooperative. And by our uh, threat to withdraw, we're going backwards on those voluntary agreements. Now, you're a featured speaker at Yale Divinity School's public conversation on climate change this past spring, which focused on ethical solutions and practical strategies for the climate crisis. What's one practical strategy that either an individual or or an organization can do to assist in solving the environmental crises? Great question. And I like to think about this in two ways, because this is a change of consciousness and conscience. So the change of consciousness is huge. We have a lot of practical things, I think, that we can do, and we all kind of know them, and it's going to make us feel good and better and so on. Like recycling? Well, of course, recycling and so on. And um, cutting your carbon footprint, uh, LED lights, measuring the Um, carbon that you're putting out in your church, in your synagogue, in your temple. Interfaith Power and Light has been leading on this for 15 years. And, you know, we love them and work closely with them. But as I said to Sally Bingham, the founder, I said 15 years ago, once we've changed our light bulbs, what do we do? Where is this as an issue in liturgy, in churches, in the pews, in preaching? We have barely gotten to first base. Anne uh, Rothorn and her husband Jeffrey, who's a bishop in the Episcopal Church, have done a beautiful book on the whole liturgical calendar and prayers and resources that can be used, you see, um, in, in churches. And that is a major resource. And some of those resources are coming up. So of course we can do the practical things. You know, we move towards electric and hybrid cars and using less energy and supporting alternative energies. But on the very deep level, as as humans, I think this taps into not just the physical energy that we can see with with alternative energies, but there's something, isn't there, about the spiritual energy of humans that's going to be called forth at this particular time. Uh, I'm writing a foreword to a book by Margaret Bullitt Jonas on the all of the different religious leaders who are leading this in the country, and many of them are deeply worried and are saying the spiritual revolution and the ecological revolution are one going forward. Mary Evelyn, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. This is such an interesting conversation on religion and ecology. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be here.